Good to see everyone out this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at uh, a couple verses in that passage in just a moment. Matthew chapter 4. It's good to see everyone. As I said just a moment ago out this morning, we do have quite a few faces that are not here uh, that I'm not able to look out and see, but it is good to just see everyone that is here. And we do have a few people back from vacations that have been, or that have been traveling, doing other things. Just very glad to have you back safely, uh, back home and uh, at Lakeside. Like I said, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 4, we're going to be reading from that passage in just a moment, but one of the verses, one of the, um, I would say, memory verses that we're taught as children, one of the lessons that we're taught as children from a very young age that we can remember even into adulthood because it's been instilled so early on, is the notion that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. That's, that's something that small kids are able to to say pretty easily, uh, pr memorize pretty easily. I think that's one of the reasons we give it as a memory verse at times with, with uh, the younger kids, and also just maybe because of its brevity. But regardless, it's an important verse that we have to learn from a very early age. It's important not just to know as a youngin, but it's also very important to know as you become an adult, as you mature in Christ. When you become a Christian, it becomes all the more important. Uh, especially when you start to look at the context behind this verse, which we'll get to in just a moment. But there are many ways that we can put the Lord to the test. There are all kinds of things that we can do. You hear people blaspheme his name all the time. They rail against his name. They rail against God in all the many ways that they think they can. What are they doing? They're putting God to the test. And, and uh, you even see this, I would say, in, in religious people uh, sometimes by by really not living the way that they should, ultimately what are they doing? They're putting God to the test. They're putting his mercy and his grace to the test every single day by continuing down a path that he says he does not like. Well, what's interesting, I think, is the, the way that we see the devil put God to the test in this passage in Matthew chapter 4. So if you're not there already, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Just a couple verses here, but it's very interesting to see how God is put to the test in this passage. This is uh, while Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness and he has fasted for 40 days. We, we uh, have talked about that before, but, but specifically picking up in verse 5, look at this next temptation that the devil uses against Jesus. It says, The devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Verse 6, He said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus answers and says to him, On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And there you see the quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6. But I really think that this is interesting here. What you, the devil's tactic here in Matthew chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6 because he, he, he starts with something that he wants Jesus to do but how does he back that up? How does Satan test God in this passage? Well, simply by using his word. By using scripture. I think it's interesting that when in the first temptation what, what does Jesus say in the first run? He says, well, this is what the scriptures teach. It is written. So it almost seems like in the second temptation, the devil is trying to say, oh, okay, so that's what you care about. Well, guess what? It's written. 
that you're not going to strike your foot against a stone. It's written that the angels are going to bear you up. And so what do you need to do? You need to throw yourself down. If you are the Son of God, prove it. I, and this, I, I just think this is so fascinating because did you know that you can put God to the test by using his own word? Did you know that you can put God to the test just by verbatim quoting it? Because that's all that the devil does here. You actually go back to Genesis chapter 3 very quickly. What, is, what does the devil say there? Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, it says, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? What does he do? He goes back and he quotes the command that has been given to Adam and Eve by God. Is, is, is this really what God has said? This has always been the devil's tactic. And I think you, you still hear people, religious people, sometimes using this same tactic. Has God really said that baptism now saves you? Indeed, does baptism really save you? Or you go a little bit further, sometimes people will say, hey, God said judge not, didn't he? And so what are they trying to say? So just stop talking to me. And there's all kinds of things that people can do that go down the same vein. But ultimately, what are they doing? They're trying to quote God's very word, literally. And they're trying to come to a separate conclusion. And so how does he use his word? But not with sincerity, not with genuine open heart, wanting to use it properly. He does it deceitfully. He does it dishonestly. And I think it's just so fascinating that the devil himself is quoting scripture and he does not mess it up. He says it perfectly. He doesn't add a word. He doesn't take away a word. What he does is he uses God's a verse, a passage, and he uses it really to misrepresent what God is trying to say. Go back to Psalm 91. This is the passage that he's actually quoting. Psalm 91. Psalm 91. <clears throat> we don't have enough time to read the whole psalm, but I would encourage you to because I think it helps when you actually get the full context of what's being quoted. But Psalm 91, beginning in verse 10. Psalm 91, beginning in verse 10. Or rather, rather verse 11. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You know... Again, there's not one word added or one word taken away. He says it perfectly. Even the devil likes to quote scripture. That is something that's noteworthy. Because not only does the devil do that, but so do the sons of disobedience. So do the people who are still in the domain of darkness under his authority, under his leadership rather. This happens day by day. People quoting scripture, not because they care about what God has to say, not because they want to come to the conclusion that God has, but because they want to misrepresent it. And, and, and there are so many ways that people do this. For, for instance, you have people that as they quote scripture, all they're trying to do is push a certain agenda. And when you call them out on that, sometimes people will come back and say, well, hey, I'm just quoting scripture here. I'm just re-quoting, I'm, I'm, re I'm just retelling what God has written down for us. I mean, that's all I'm doing. <laughs> Is that really all you're doing, though? No, rather, you, you're putting a sp very specific verse into a very specific situation to imply something. There's always some uh, back, uh, backwards motive behind that. Because, I'll tell you one example that this happened. I, thought, I think this happened 
so often throughout 2020 and even beyond that. People would talk about COVID-19. They'd talk about the, the, the epidemic and there was such heated debates on these things, even among brethren. And you even had some brethren talking about how, how they don't care enough about other Christians. They don't care enough about them. They don't care about their family members. And so what are they doing ultimately? They're killing grandma. And you'd see people, I'm not kidding, someone actually sent this verse to me. And I wasn't even, I wasn't even causing a ruckus. All I was saying was, remember, God said that we're not to be anxious. And God said that we are supposed to trust in him. And this person came back to me with Exodus 20, verse 13. She said, oh, but God also said, do not murder. And so are we just overlooking that? And I was like, whoa, now. So you're, you're saying, because... I'm, I'm just telling you what Matthew 6 says, that we are not supposed to be anxious, and, and, and Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, that we're not to be anxious for anything, that that means that I'm advocating murder? That's very good reasoning there. Solid logic. I mean, it's, it's silly. Now, not to, say that there, not to say that there were some precautions that people could make and that could, people could make appropriately and maybe even for the benefit of others, but just because... Someone doesn't go as far as maybe you do. That doesn't mean that they're murdering. That doesn't mean that they don't care. But this is something that you saw people. They had agendas that they were trying to push behind this. You go beyond that. There, were, there are people that take certain passages just simply too far. And you can take passages too far. Ultimately, that's what the devil was doing. He took Psalm 91 verses 11 through 12. And he says, I'm going to take this and, and push it further than God ever intended for it to go. And I'm going to make some other applications that I would like to make. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11, I think is a perfect example of how people do this today. It says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That, let me tell you something, that is a beautiful verse. And I think that that's a verse that should encourage us, that should bring us comfort. But I tell you what, there are all kinds of people that will tattoo that verse on themselves. And I remember there was a guy that actually did that, and I was, I just... I might have been being a bit too provocative, but I was just kind of questioning him. This was when I was a lot younger and a lot more uh, rash. And I said, well, do you, even, do you even know what's being talked about there? And he said, well, it seems like God is saying that he's going to take care of it. And I, and I was like, yes, but do you know how he's going to? Do you, do, you, do you know what's surrounding that verse? Go to Jeremiah chapter 29. Begin in verse 10. Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon... I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. First of all, People act like this is specifically, this is directly uh, applicable to them when really God is speaking to Israel. And what is he telling them that's going to happen? Yes, I have plans. I have plans that I have for you, plans for welfare, not for calamity. But before we get to this point, they have to go through the 70 years. Jeremiah is prophesying before Babylon ever comes. And what is God saying? Yes, of course I'm going to take care of you. But that doesn't mean that the calamity isn't going to come first. I'm not going to leave you there. But even after the calamity comes, what does he say? Those who seek me, those who look for me, they're going to find me. 
But there are going to be some that don't look for him. But people don't care about the context. I just really like this verse and I like the way it sounds. I, I mean, and, and again, I love this verse too. But are you so willing to hear this passage when you learn that you have to go through Babylon first? And a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people like what the New Testament has to say about the comfort and rest we have in Jesus. But will you also take what Jesus says when he says, you've got to carry your own cross. You have to deny yourself. No, we don't like that as much. So we leave it out. And we only focus on one thing. What are, what are people doing? They're taking one passage too far. And they're completely forgetting everything else. And that's clearly not what God wants us to do. But this is a tactic of the devil. Well, not only that, but you also have people that try to make points that God never intended. By misdirecting people from God's purpose in his word. For, you sometimes see a, a meme that talks about speak the truth in love. And that's in Ephesians 4 in verse 15. And I would just say that's not even the full verse. You, and it's not the full context. We need to get into that. And we just did in the Bible class, in the adult class. But regardless, sometimes people will put this up and they say, you need to speak the truth in love. And sometimes people will quote that because of what, maybe a, a lesson like last week when we talked about the, the sin of homosexuality. People don't, some people don't like hearing that. And so they say, it's not loving to tell homosexuals that they're sinning. Really? You know what? Here's a good example. Go back to Matthew chapter 23. How many times Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. Is, is Jesus isn't loving then. Just because he has something to say that's going to maybe, maybe possibly offend someone. Just because he's going to say something that's, that's co contradictory to the way someone's living. Well, that just means Jesus doesn't. No. I, in fact, when you look through Matthew chapter 23, I think Jesus has more love than anyone there. Yes, they were, he was calling them hypocrites. They were hypocrites. He didn't want them to stay there. I, oh, if you would just come back. Oh, if you would just repent. Like a mother hen, I would, I would collect the chicks. And there's so much beautiful love here from Jesus. But just because he's speaking with, you know, you're sinning, that doesn't mean he's not loving, but sometimes people like to act like that. I mean, you just see these kinds of things over and over again all throughout uh, in our culture, in our society, every single day on social media, just talking to people. We could go on and on and on, but rest assured, the devil is still working like this today, and we need to be made aware of this. But ultimately, I want to look at how Jesus defends God. How does Jesus defend God when this... When, the devil comes in and uses his very word to try and tempt him, to try and lie to him, to misdirect him. Verse 7 of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Instead of putting God to the test, what does Jesus do? He puts everything else and everyone else to the test with his word. You see uh, this phrase, and I don't think this is in the ESV even, but in the New American Standard, I like the way he, it's, it's put here, on the other hand, it is written. Jesus is not saying that Psalm 91 doesn't say that. He's, he's not saying, oh, you're wrong. He, he's not saying you've misquoted that. No, yes, it's been quoted accurately. But what he is saying is, but you are, this is completely off balance. These are, you're not harmonizing the scriptures here. On the other hand, God has also told us we're not to put him to the test. So clearly, you're wrong about something. Clearly, you're off. This is how Jesus responds. We, we, we need to learn how to balance God's scripture the way he intends, the way Jesus so masterfully and beautifully did. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, this is a familiar passage, but 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, 
Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And in fact, this is how we are to respond today. Not by just saying, well, we're not going to look at... Because let me tell you something. People, people will come and say things that, that... This is what the Calvinist does time and time again. They bring scripture and they say, well, what are you going to say about this? And too many times, brethren will look at that and say, well, we're not going to talk about that. No, we can talk about that. But as long as first we understand that it is that God also says this about baptism, that God also says this about the assurance of the saints, that God also says this about doctrine. And so we need to learn how Jesus did. We need to look at how Jesus does this, learn how he does this, and apply that to our lives. So how do we do this today? I think we see a few rules in, in Jesus' response here of how we are to accurately handle the word of truth. Now, uh, this, is just a, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a few things that I think we find in Jesus' response. And first of all, one way that we accurately handle the word of God is that... We need to be honest with the text. We need to have common sense with the scriptures. What I mean by that is honest interpretation. You can just reread what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. We, we don't want to be ashamed. How do we not be ashamed? You come to this honestly. And you come to this with an open heart and an open mind. And you don't come with pre, preconceived notions. And, and frankly, I really think common sense is a big, big thing here. Because, well, for example... I remember, uh, I remember someone going through a couple of passages and trying to make a point about the need for common sense when reading Scripture. So first he turned to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 5. He said, first of all, we agree that God's word, that Scripture is God-breathed, and we need to obey it, we need to listen to it, we need to apply it. Do what he says. Amen? Amen. All right, Matthew 27 verse 5. Judas hung himself. Luke 10, 37, go and do likewise. Is that common sense? No, that's, that's stupidity. And, and frankly, that is just, that is a, not even a brief lapse of judgment. This is someone who's so open-minded, their brains have fallen out. No, when you come to Scripture, God expects you to communicate the same way. He expects us to come to Him, listen to Him the same way we communicate with each other. So when He says something... We need to look at what he wanted us to learn. We, and we don't just turn through the Bible. Sometimes you'll hear uh, people in, in, in denominations say, well, I'm just, I'm just going to preach about where the Spirit leads me today. And they open up their Bible randomly and point to it, and they start doing this very thing. No preparation, no forethought to try and think through some of the things that God wants us to think through. I, unfortunately, you even have brethren that act like that sometimes. Well, let's just open this up. Let's no, we need to have common sense. We need to have sincere honesty when we read God's word. We don't just get to come to it and, and just read whatever we want from the text. No, you come to it and you read it the way he expects you to, the way he commands us to. So we need to be honest with the text. But not only that, we need, we need to come to the conclusion that God wanted us to. We need to make the point that God intended to make. You look at what the devil tries to do in Psalm 91. Psalm 91 and verses 11 through 12, he's, he's quoting scripture, but clearly he is not coming to the conclusion that God came to. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want to read the rest of this verse here. Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 16. 
It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. I think there's a reason that when the devil quotes Psalm 91, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 in verse 16. There's context behind this passage. In Exodus chapter 17, what you have is a place called Massa. And that, this is how verse 16 ends, just as they did at Massa, how Israel did. In Exodus chapter 17, you had the people of God, Israel, really having a rebellious attitude towards God by putting him to the test because they grumble and they murmur and they, they never really stop this, and they, but they don't learn here. And so, so God provides for them still, even though they are murmuring and grumbling, even though they have rebelled against him, God provides for Israel, even in this instance. And what you find is this is just kind of a, this is going to be a continual thing. The mercy of God is just so rich. And the, the, the lack of gratefulness in the people of Israel is just too immense. But regardless, he provides for them even though they have tested him, even though they have gone too far. Let me just ask. When you read through that story in Exodus chapter 17 of God still providing the water for them, are we supposed to learn from this that God was pleased with them? That he was pleased with their behavior? That this is behavior that he wanted them to continue and repeat? You'd think by their, by their actions from here on out that almost that's what they thought. But that's not what God thought. He didn't want his people to continue to act like that. Just because he provided for them in his mercy does not mean that that was okay behavior. In fact, they had a sinful attitude. Does this mean since God still provided for them, even though they had the sinful attitude, that they were right in how they attained that provision? Clearly not. As we were just saying, it was a sinful attitude. You don't put God's mercy to the test because at some point, and some of them would learn this, that mercy runs out. And you'd have plagues that would hit even God's people that never should have happened ultimately because of their rebelliousness and their continued persistent stubbornness against him. God expected them, Israel, to understand from his mercy and grace that they were wrong and better do different from now on. He did not expect from them, oh, they should just keep on going. No, and they, and they knew better. They did know better because they had Moses and Aaron constantly telling them, realize that you're not grumbling against us, you're grumbling against God. We cannot allow people to purposefully distort what God is trying to say in his word. We can't allow people to mishandle that word. When people do and they come to us in this way, we need to know, we need to know the word enough. We need to have that readiness to make a defense of the faith that we have, that we hold up. So that way we can counteract the absurdity that sometimes people want to bring out. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. So, so often people will say, hey... The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. So young people, when you're in school, when you encounter certain individuals that are living in sin and maybe they know that you're a Christian that, and maybe you even said a couple things, listen, Pride Month, this is nothing but sinful. I mean, just the, just the fact that we're celebrating pride, that's a terrible notion. And, and someone comes up to you and says, hey, Matthew 7 verse 1 says, don't judge, that you're not supposed to judge. So stop, judge how I, stop judging me and how I'm living. Stop judging me and my habits and my actions. Well, since they've quoted scripture, does this mean that you stop using scripture? Since they say, hey, it says judge not, so shut up. Do we just stop talking about scripture? Do we stop saying, thus saith the Lord? Do we stop saying, it is written? No, no. And parents, <laughs> we need to 
we need to instill that further and further and further because all the more, every single day, the culture is trying to say, stop talking. The culture is trying to say, you, you have nothing to add to this conversation. And they do it sometimes by using God's word. And, and I, I could go through numerous different interviews that, that I watched as I was preparing for that lesson of, over homosexuality. How many times people would use just that verse in Matthew 7? No, we are supposed to reveal God, our Father's purpose behind that verse, behind those passages, which was hypocrisy. And then we go even further. We continue on preaching. We say, on the other hand, it's written. And we teach them what the Bible actually has to say. We need to make, come to the conclusion that God meant for us to and make that point. And don't start espousing something that he never intended. Not only that, but we must harmonize God's word, not, not pit it against each other. There's a lot of ways that people do this today too, but you can, you can almost imagine if, if a teenager got mad at their parent one day because they didn't like some of the chores that they were tasked with throughout the day. And so they say, well, you know what? Luke chapter 14 and verse 26 says that we're, we're supposed to hate father and mother. We're supposed to hate ch our children. We're supposed to hate the people that, that we love most. We're supposed to hate those people. Otherwise, we can't be God's disciple, right? So you know what? I don't have to do what you say. I don't have to take out the trash because, God, because Jesus said I'm supposed to hate you. <laughs> oh, really? Well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Let's, I mean... Let's see what Jesus, the words of Jesus through the Apostle Paul has to say about this. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So, so what do we got to do? Well, clearly, we're not going to come to the conclusion that, well, this passage is wrong and this passage is right. No, no, no. That's not how. That, that may be how sometimes man, man's logic, man's communication works. That's not how God's communication works. Everything that he has given to us, everything that he has revealed, all comes together beautifully and perfectly. Now, if there's a disconnect, that's on our end, not God's. And we're not going to attribute our failure to him. I think one very uh, applicable passage this happens with all the time is in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. A favorite verse of a lot of people that, that uh, a lot of our denominational friends. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And to that I say, amen. But what happens sometimes is, you, you, you have someone who comes up, uses this verse, forgets every other verse that talks about repentance that talks about baptism and they try to and they try to overwrite all those things because look at what this says for by grace you have been saved through faith all right well and this is something that that it, that a gospel preacher actually said not not just not just some denominational preacher a gospel preacher said this about this verse and it, this is shocking you tell me does this sound like someone trying to harmonize scripture as he read this verse he said brothers i want to preach this passage i want to preach it without reservation I want to preach it without caveat. I want to be able to proclaim it loudly from the rooftops without anyone telling me, hey, wait a minute, don't take that passage too far. The reality is we cannot take the teaching of this passage too far. We cannot take the teaching of God's saving grace too far. I want to teach this passage loudly and boldly without anyone telling me that I need to rein that in or balance it out with some other teaching from the scripture. 
gospel preacher said something like that. That's not someone who cares about harmonizing God's word. What is he saying? I don't have to rein this in with scripture. I don't have to think about what God says, you know, maybe in another part of the New Testament. I don't need to think about what Jesus himself said in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Direct words from Jesus. But we don't care about that because look at what Ephesians 2 and verse 8 says. This verse matters. I'm not saying it doesn't. But we need to be able to harmonize Scripture so that way we're not taking a passage too far. So that way we don't, we don't go too far ourselves and start saying silly things. You want to know why some passages people have to give caveats? Because the world has done what the devil has done for ages and has distorted people's mindset, understanding of these passages. And so we have to come back in and undo the damage. And let me tell you something. Would not some Judaizing teachers have said this about circumcision? The exact same thing that the gospel preacher said? The so-called gospel preacher? Wouldn't they have said the exact same things about circumcision? We can't take this. We can't take this teaching too far. This is what the law of Moses has said. Well, you can't just forget about this. What were they doing? They were adding onto the conditions, that something that God had never said that you had to do to have salvation. But they were saying you need to be believe. You need to hear the word, believe. You need to repent of your uh, sins, confess, be baptized, and be circumcised. Problem is, God never said you need to be circumcised. But they would have done the exact same thing. And that's because they held it above everything else God said and missed the point, which was Christ. And I think that's the same thing that people do today. They hold something above everything else because they're not willing to let something go, even though God has not specified it. What's, what is the one thing that we should not let go? What God has intended for us to learn. Not what I want to push, whether it be because of a hidden agenda that I have, whatever the case may be. We need to make sure that we are not, we need to make sure that we are harmonizing all of God's word and not just picking and choosing, cherry picking what we want to take from it and leaving the context behind. Well, all of this being said, I think it really comes down to we have to know the Bible. We have to know what God has actually said. My question is, going back to Matthew chapter 4, could you quote scripture the way Jesus did? When people come to you and start questioning you about, about baptism, someone says, the Bible says to believe, so leave baptism out of this. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It doesn't say anything about baptism, so stop talking about it. Because you're, what are you trying to do? You're trying to add to it. What would you say to that? Are you able to say something to that? Do you have a response? If we don't, we need to start thinking about that now. Are we able to come back and say, on the other hand, in James chapter 2 and verse 24, it says that faith alone is dead. On the other hand, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, it literally says baptism now saves you. So, so maybe we need to correct some, mis, uh, mis, uh, some assumptions that have been made before coming to the scriptures. When someone comes and tries to say something about, like that about baptism, could you go to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 and verse 27 where it says that we are sons of Abraham, sons of faith, when we've been baptized, we've been clothed in Christ. Are we able to respond like that or do we, do we, are we just hoping people don't ask those kinds of questions? Because frankly, we don't have the answers. We need to have the answers. Can you know the intent of the author unless you know what he said can you balance the scriptures out without knowing all that God has said on the matter should we be speaking 
about something unless we know what God has said about the matter. And I just go back to something I said earlier. The Calvinist banks on the hope that Christians don't know the Bible enough so that they can trip us up somehow by the exact same ploy of the devil in Matthew chapter 4. Well, you, you just don't think enough about faith. And so they, they try to quote other scripture to make you forget everything else God has said. We can't be tripped up in that way. We need to be like Jesus who knows scripture enough, who makes the points that God wants him to make, that does not take it too far, that is honest with the text. We need to be able to do that so that way we will not be putting God to the test. So the question is this morning, have you been putting God to the test? You may be a Christian. You may have given your life over to God already. Have you allowed someone to mishandle the word, not accurately handle it, but mishandle it, so that you might compromise somewhere down the line? Have you accidentally compromised somewhere? The answer is stop listening to every, all, all the others that are telling you what you need to think and listen solely to God. What does God have to say? And you can make your life right with him. If you're not a Christian, I would just say, no matter what you say, no matter what your defense is, you may not be purposefully twisting his word necessarily. But simply ignoring it, neglecting it day by day, you are putting God to the test. Because what has he made clear through the gospel? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we need a savior. And he has given it to us freely through his, the sacrifice of his son. God is calling you day by day through that gospel message to join his kingdom. Are you testing his patience by just keeping it off another day? Are you testing his patience by hearing that beautiful message but saying, I don't need it right now? Tick tock. You're putting him to the test. Are you subject to the invitation of Christ this morning? Are you willing to hear what he has to say, believe those words, make a confession based on that belief, pledge your allegiance to the king, repent of everything he says that you need to do away with, be baptized so that you can rise in newness of life, wash those sins away, and stop putting him to the test. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward, let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.